0: Amen. I love worshiping our awesome God. So uh, please join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I, I do thank you for this opportunity you've given us to meet online, Lord, and to lift up praises to you. Uh, you are worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory. Lord, we want to just meet with you right now. We have many things on our minds and hearts we want to put before you, but uh, Lord, I want to share just a few of those. Uh, we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the nations of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them and embolden them in their faith, help them as they're reaching out to orphans and widows in their distress, as they're getting uh, necessary supplies to those who were trapped in Ukraine, O God. Uh, We pray that uh, you would strengthen the leaders in Ukraine, O God, to take a stand against the invasion. And we continue to pray, O God, that you would change Vladimir Putin's heart and that he would bring his troops back to Russia, O God, thwart his plans to steal or kill, or destroy. And Lord, I pray for everyone who's dealing with illness right now, those that are dealing with difficulties in their relationships or financial challenges, Lord. The gas is so expensive, and uh, Lord, everything seems to be getting more costly these days. So I pray for those struggling right now uh, with some of these different issues. God, give them strength. Continue to provide for them. Uh, show yourself, oh God, to be such a good and faithful provider. We trust in you. We love you. We lean on you today. Change us by your word as we dive into your word in just a few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are so glad that you're here and worship with us. A few quick announcements before we dive into God's Word together. Uh, First of all, wanted to remind you, Mondays and Wednesdays, we've got some great, uh, great programs going on at Impact. This past Monday, we had an awesome Pray for Ukraine prayer meeting. Uh, Remember, we have prayer meetings every Monday night, 6 o'clock, online through Zoom. You can join us through the Zoom app or by using any phone. Uh, We also have an in-person at 6 30. Uh, those prayer meetings are so important. It's one of the most important things we do as a church. We'd love to have you tomorrow night for our prayer meeting. Wednesday night remember we've got our Genesis Bible study. It's open to everyone. Six o'clock both online through Zoom and also in person. If you need to have uh, that information on how to join us on Zoom or from any phone feel free to reach out to our church office 760-246-4100 or you can send an email to holly at info at greater impact. CC. We'd love to get you that information about how you can join us on Monday or Wednesday nights right from your home. Coming up in just five weeks is Easter Sunday. Can you believe it? It's coming up fast, and so we've got an Easter Invitation Challenge, both for those who join us in person and for those of you who join us online. We're encouraging you to invite new friends and family to join us for our Sunday morning services between now and Easter Sunday. If you let us know you brought a first-time visitor with you for the first time to this online service, we will be happy to enter both your name and that friend's name into a drawing that we'll be doing on Easter morning. We had three great prizes donated to us as a church, a $300 cruiser bike, a $200 gift card for the local Christian bookstore, and also a little tight slide for one of our little ones. So uh, we'll enter your uh, name and your friend's name into that drawing, which we'll do on Easter morning uh, if you're inviting friends or family as first-time visitors to join you right here online. We'd love to hear that you did that today. And then uh, finally, wanted to remind you that uh, coming up uh, at the end of April is going to be our man camp men's retreat if you'd like to be a part of this we're going to be heading up to Angelus Crest Christian Camp i'm hoping to take 15 to 20 guys for the weekend it's going to be a wonderful uh, weekend up there in the mountains enjoying some fresh air throwing some hatchets doing some zip lining and having a great time worshiping god and studying his word together so hope you can join us uh, reach out to me at the church office if you'd like more info about man camp coming up the final weekend in April and if you're a regular supporter of Impact Christian Church with your tithes and offerings thank you for giving to us uh, we want to be faithful stewards of all the tithes and offerings that are entrusted to us and so uh, we do some great work here in the Victor Valley and around the world thank you for your faithful giving remember there are three different ways that you can give you can give online at our website you can text any dollar amount to 84321 or you can write a check thank you for your faithful giving to Impact Christian Church. And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles in hand and open them to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be continuing today our message series looking at the life of Paul. But I want to start by sharing you a vid- with you a video uh, that has some powerful words in it. Pay attention to
1: this. What's desperately needed today is a call to action. It is to Christians to get serious about their faith that's given once for all and trusted to the saints, as Jude teaches. It is to understand it so that you can live it, and it's to understand it so that you can defend it. Where does it begin? It begins with repentance. There has never been a powerful move of God anywhere where the people of God didn't first repent. We've got to repent of our sins of having been enculturated, captured, and seduced by the culture in which we live. Break free like the church is doing in the third world and live the true gospel. Ask forgiveness. Seek God's favor. Turn away and change. Be transformed. On your knees, pray, and then work with your pastor and the people in the churches. Encourage them. Pray for one another. Build those bonds of unity so that the world will see the love and the hope of the great proposal which we have to offer. God bless you. Now,
0: did you catch what he said at the beginning? He said this. What's desperately needed today is a call to action. For Christians to get serious about their faith, it begins with repentance. There has never been a powerful move of God anywhere without the people of God first repenting. We've got to repent of our sins, of having been enculturated, captured, and seduced by the culture in which we live, break free, and live the true gospel. Those are some powerful words. But do you know who this guy is that spoke these words? That's Chuck Colson. You may recognize those of you who've studied politics That this Chuck Colson is the same Chuck Colson who was one of the most ruthless political operatives of the past 50 years. Chuck Colson was White House advisor for President Richard Nixon. He was President Richard Nixon's hatchet man. Behind the scenes doing all the dirty work that he needed to do, whatever it took, to defame Richard Nixon's opponents and make his friend and president, look good. He was President Nixon's hatchet man. And so here he is speaking about standing for Christ and making sure that we stand upon the gospel. How is that possible? Well, near the end of President Nixon's first term in office, Chuck Colson gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he decided that he was going to, from that point forward, be an honest man. And so he resigned from the Nixon administration, and he proved that he, was honest, that he was serious about being honest because about a year and a half into Nixon's second term, Chuck Colson voluntarily pled guilty to obstruction of justice in a matter related to the Watergate scandal. And so Chuck uh, Colson served a seven-month sentence in Alabama's Maxwell Prison. Years later in his book, Born Again, Chuck Colson wrote these words. He said, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. And Chuck Colson did do something. In 1976, a year after he was released from prison, he founded Prison Fellowship, which is now the nation's largest Christian nonprofit ministry to prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Every Christmas season here at Impact Christian Church, we take part in Angel Tree. We're one of thousands of churches that, that take part in that ministry. Angel Tree is that wonderful program where we buy Christmas gifts on behalf of prisoners and we give them to those prisoners' kids on behalf of mom and dad who are incarcerated. Thousands of churches do this every year. Angel Tree is a ministry of prison fellowship, a ministry that was started by a man who was one of the most ruthless, dishonest political operatives In the past 50 years in Washington, D.C., a man who was Nixon's hatchet man. This is the man that God used to create a prison ministry that has impacted millions over the last 40 years. Hmm. God doesn't just save hell-bent sinners as we saw last week. He recruits them to change the world. That was true of Nixon's hatchet man, and it was also true of a young Jewish hothead and thug named Saul. Both Chuck Colson and Saul had a Damascus Road experience with Jesus Christ, and they were never the same again. This morning, we're going to continue our new message series called The Life of Paul. And I've named today's message, The Road to Damascus. The Road to Damascus. Although Paul went on to write half the books of the New Testament and planted over a dozen churches on two different continents, remember from what we studied last week in, in Acts chapter uh, 7 that uh, Saul didn't start out so well. In his early years, uh, Saul went by the, Paul, I should say, went by the Hebrew name Saul. So Saul and Paul in the book of Acts, same guy. And when Saul of Tarsus first appears in the book of Acts, he's supporting Stephen's lynching. He's supporting Stephen's lynch mob as they stone him to death. Think about that. Over the past 2,000 years, there have been millions of Christians martyred for their faith. But the very first Christian to be martyred for his faith was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And for that first Christian martyrdom, Saul was right there holding the coats of those who were killing him, cheering on Stephen's murderers. There Saul was cheering on our brother in Christ who laid down his life for Christ. Think about that. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Then in verse 3, it says Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The Living Bible translates the first part of verse 3 this way. Paul was like a wild man going everywhere to devastate believers. The Greek verb used here was used in Bible times to describe a wild boar who was wreaking havoc and ravaging a vineyard. That same word was used of a ravenous wolf who was mangling his prey. That's the word used to describe Saul there in chapter 8, verse 3. Pastor Chuck Swindoll, I think, says it really well. He says Saul was borderline out of control. He was out of control by the time we get to verse 3 of Acts chapter 8. Can you relate? Can you relate with what Saul was dealing with here? In in hindsight, some of you can see that there was a time in your life when you were like a wild man, borderline out of control. Uh, You were uh, like a wild woman, borderline out of control. Some of us used to be pretty wild, didn't we? Some of us still are. And all of us know others, maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe co-workers, maybe a student we go to school with, maybe a neighbor, who's right now a wild man or a wild woman living a life that's out of control. You can't tame them. I can't tame them. But in the Word of God, we see that God Himself, amen, He has the ability to tame the wildest man and the wildest woman who are borderline out of control. Well, Saul's story continues in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. So make sure you're there in your Bibles. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22 records Saul's conversion on the day, on the road to Damascus. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, records Saul's conversion to Christianity. But later in the book of Acts, Luke does something that's really, really interesting. Two more times, he records Saul's conversion right from the mouth of Saul. Over in Acts chapter 22, verses 2 through 16, he shares uh, Paul's own account of his conversion while he was speaking to a crowd in Jerusalem. And then finally, over in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 20, Paul shares his testimony with Governor Festus and King Agrippa. So as Luke writes the book of Acts, In these 28 chapters, he records three different times Saul's conversion. Do you think maybe Luke felt that was an important thing for you and me to understand and know the details about? Each of these three accounts adds a a bit more detail to the prior one. And so Acts 9 gives us a wonderful overview of Saul's conversion to Christianity. But in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, we're given a, a few more details. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to jot down these three passages. And on your own time, a little bit later this afternoon, I would love for you to read each of these accounts of Saul's conversion because each of them is so, so Powerful. Now, this past week, I I did something that took a little bit of time, but I'm hoping it'll be fruitful for you today. I looked at each of these three accounts of Saul's conversion, and I combined them into one account. And so, over the next few minutes, I'm going to read for you a combined account of the first half of his conversion experience, the part when he's on the road to Damascus. After he leaves that road and goes into Damascus, we'll look at that next week, Lord willing, the second part of his conversion. But I want to share with you over the next few minutes these three passages. Once again, jot them down. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 22, verses 2 through 16. And Acts chapter 26, Verses 9 through 20. Once again, Acts 9, 1 through 22. Acts 22, 2 through 16. And Acts 26, 9 through 20. I'm going to read for you the first half of Paul's conversion account with all three of these conversion accounts combined into one. So here we go. The amazing account of Paul's conversion right here from the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was convinced that he ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what he did in Jerusalem. He persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And when they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. Many a time he went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and he tried to force them to blaspheme. In his obsession against them, he even went to foreign cities to persecute them. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. About noon, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a a bright light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazed and flashed around him. Saul and his companions fell to the ground, and Saul heard a voice say to him in Aramaic, "'Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads.' "'Who are you, Lord?' Saul asked. "'I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting,' Saul replied. "'What shall I do, Lord?' The Lord said, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now go, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to him. They also saw the light, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, because the brilliance of the light had blinded him. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Now, if you're listening to the audio portion of this message, uh, you're not able to see what we have displayed on the screen right now. You can go to uh, our Facebook page or you can go to our YouTube channel and you can see this entire passage I just read color-coded so you know exactly which of the three passages what I'm reading is coming from. But there is a combined account, what we read about Saul's conversion in Acts chapters 9, 22, and 26. And isn't that good? Isn't that powerful? Saul's Damascus Road conversion is the most famous conversion in the 2,000-year history of Christianity. And over the next few minutes, I'd like to point out to you some of the highlights. Well, in Acts 9, it, it begins very, very abruptly. Luke spends most of chapter 8 focusing on the wonderful work and ministry of a Christian deacon named Philip, who was spreading the gospel in Samaria and and leading many people to Christ. But as he was planting, planting gospel seeds there in Samaria, meanwhile, Saul was back in Jerusalem trying to uproot and stamp out those gospel seeds. Acts 9 begins with these words. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I like how the Living Bible says it. Saul was threatening with every breath and eager to destroy every Christian. And by Saul's own account in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26, he was convinced that he ought to do all that was possible to oppress the name of Jesus. And that's just what he did in Jerusalem and in other cities outside of Jerusalem. Just as Chuck Colson was Nixon's hatchet man, Saul was the Sanhedrin's hatchet man. He did their dirty work for them and In the middle of the synagogue services, he would barge in and arrest Christians. Right in the middle of services, yanking them out of the synagogue. He would pound on doors and he would drag Jewish followers out of their own homes. And once they were arrested, Saul would try to force them to deny the name of Christ. Some he would whip, others he threw in prison, others he tossed to the mob to be murdered. And when he heard that many Jewish Christians had made their way to the ancient city of Damascus, some 150 miles from Jerusalem, Saul didn't care that it would take him upwards of a week to get there. He was bound to determine to take a dozen or so soldiers there and arrest as many Christians as possible, drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for their crimes against Judaism. So, he left Jerusalem, And he charged north with bloodthirsty determination and blind hatred for Christians. But Saul's life was turned upside down, wasn't it? It was turned upside down beginning in verses 3 and 4. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul! Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul's account in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, adds a couple important details that we don't read here in Acts 9. First, the mysterious voice spoke to him in Aramaic. Now that's significant because Aramaic was the language of Israel. So you better believe that when he heard this voice speaking to him from this light, because it was in Aramaic, he paid careful attention to what that voice was saying. Second, secondly, according to what we read in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, the voice adds the words, You are kicking against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what on earth does that mean? So what is an ox goad? An ox goad in layman's terms, is a long, pointy stick. (laughs) It's used by third world farmers in order to encourage their oxen to plow a straight line and not dilly-dally. And so a third world farmer oftentimes will hold the plow with one hand and his ox goad with the other hand. That ox goad is somewhere between 6 and 8 feet long. The stick is made out of oak or another hardwood and then has a pointy kind of metal uh, blade at the end of it. So he would poke the legs or poke the rump of that ox that's not plowing like he should. And so what is Jesus saying here? Or at this point he doesn't even know it's Jesus. Saul just knows it's a mysterious voice saying to him, "Why are you kicking against the goads?" Well, As far as Saul understands it at the time, that voice is just telling him something that he has been doing has been going terribly wrong. He's only hurting himself. Uh, I'd like to say we could say it this way. It is in the best interest of the ox to heed the prodding of the farmer. Wouldn't you agree? And the same holds true for people. It's in our best interest to heed the prodding of Jesus Christ. So, Saul is being told, even before he realizes that this is Jesus Christ speaking to him, Saul, something you've been doing has been, in essence, kicking against the goats. Now, notice the question that Saul asks in Acts chapter 9, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? It's clear at this point he doesn't know who's speaking to him. We know this because he uses the generic form of the word Lord, that Greek word kurios, which could also translate as sir or simply master. It was just a term of respect. You've probably heard the old joke about uh, what do you call a 500-pound gorilla? You call him Sir, right? That's what you call him. And so it's a similar thing going on here. He doesn't know who's speaking to him, but he knows he's been knocked off his high horse. This light is brighter than the sun shining in his face. It's blinding him, and he's so scared he can't get up and run the opposite direction. So whoever this is speaking to him, he better call him Sir. And so he doesn't know at the time. He doesn't know at the time who's speaking. And so, the voice continues, Why are you persecuting me? Huh. Why are you persecuting me? He asks, Who are you, Lord? And the voice responds, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. In that moment, Paul's world turned upside down. Undoubtedly, he had all sorts of thoughts swirling through his head. He had these thoughts swirling through his mind and heart. I imagine he said to himself, Oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? In a matter of seconds, the light of revelation shined in Paul's wicked heart. Ever since that very first Easter Sunday, Saul had been convinced that Jesus was dead. And his followers had just made up this cockamamie story about him rising from the dead. But here Jesus is, alive and well, talking to him. Paul couldn't wrap his mind around how wrong he had been. Paul was thinking to himself, how could I have been so blind? And Jesus' light of revelation reveals not only that he is alive, but that when Saul had been persecuting Christians, Saul had actually been persecuting him. Here on the road to Damascus, notice what Jesus isn't saying. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christian men? He doesn't ask him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christian women? What does he ask? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I imagine Saul's mind was racing back in this moment to what King David wrote in Psalm 51 verse 4 after he was found out about committing adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband murdered. Remember what David writes in Psalm 51, verse 4. Even though he had sinned with Bathsheba, even though he had killed her husband, King David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Saul must have been thinking to himself, How could I have been so wrong? I haven't been sinning against man. I have been sinning against God's chosen Messiah. And on the road to Damascus here, Jesus' light of revelation reveals that Saul had been kicking at the goads for quite a while. Saul's encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus road is, without a doubt, a watershed moment. But it isn't the first time Jesus has tried to get Saul's attention. It seems clear that Jesus had been working on Saul for a while. Over the centuries, Christians have wondered... Which specific goads Jesus is referring to here? He says, Paul, you have been kicking against the goads. What goads was Jesus thinking about when he said that? Well, here are a few suggestions I think are pretty good. Goad number one. Saul had lived in Jerusalem most of his life. He was probably only about five years younger than Jesus Christ. And so having lived in Jerusalem most of his life and knowing that Jesus had gone and ministered in Jerusalem publicly at least half a dozen times. Certainly Saul had heard some of Jesus' teaching. Perhaps he was there when Jesus made that little whip and, and drove out the money changers. Maybe Saul was there in the temple courts when Jesus was there. And that woman caught in adultery was thrown before him. And and Jesus said, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Jesus showed her mercy. Maybe Saul was there that day. Certainly Saul would have been there when the huge crowds were gathered. On that Palm Sunday when Jesus crested the Mount of Olives and descended into Jerusalem on that little burrow, And he cried and wept over Jerusalem. Maybe Saul was there that day. If Saul was there any of those times, certainly it had made some sort of impact on him. But in his stubborn pride, Saul had rejected Jesus' teaching. He was kicking against the goads. Goad number two. The murder of Stephen was likely a second goad. Sure, Saul was casting his vote against Stephen and cheering for his murderers as they splattered his blood in the street. But certainly Stephen's final words rang in Paul's mind and heart. Remember at the end of chapter 5, see, make sure I have the right chapter, end of chapter 6, it says that as they looked in the Sanhedrin at the face of Stephen, his face was like the face of an angel. Saul was most likely there that day. He saw Stephen's face. And then at the end of Stephen's sermon, he's drug out into the street, remember? And they pick up rocks and begin to stone him. Saul was right there. The coats were at his feet. He could see Stephen. And he heard what he said with this peace resonating from his, his countenance. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He wasn't screaming in pain. He wasn't recanting his faith. He wasn't saying, hey guys, I was wrong, forgive me, I I, I was a little too dogmatic about this Jesus guy. He simply says, receive my spirit, and as he falls on his knees and is about to die, the last words uttered by this man are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. On his deathbed, he's forgiving his murderers. Saul heard those words, certainly it had some sort of impact on Saul. And go number three. Every time Saul went on a rampage, barging into synagogues and pounding down doors to arrest and haul off Christians, in all likelihood, a few of those Christians caved to the pressure and recanted their faith on some level. But he couldn't help but notice that the vast majority of Christians didn't recant their faith. Saul observed that both men and women, time and time again, stood strong in their convictions and freely submitted to beatings and imprisonment and even death for the name of Christ. Certainly at some point during his rampage, uh, he had Psalm 116.15 ring in his head, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Saul was kicking against the goats. When he listened to Jesus speak, if he did hear him speak in person, he was kicking against the goads. When he stood there cheering on the murderers of Stephen and heard what Stephen said on his deathbed, he was kicking against the goads. And when he arrested Christians, even though there was fury on his face and fury in his words, at some level, it must have been sinking in what he was doing. He was kicking against the goads. And finally, Finally, here on the Damascus Road, Jesus speaks and Saul listens. At long last, he stops kicking against the goads, and he really, really listens. And we're so thankful that Saul doesn't simply listen. He also obeys. In Acts 22, verse 6, actually Acts 22, verse 8, Paul shares with us some more important questions that he asked on the road, one in particular. Jesus revealed that Saul was persecuting him, and Saul asked a follow-up question in Acts 22, verse 8, a question that's not recorded for us there in Acts chapter 9. He asked this question, What shall I do? Lord, what shall I do? He calls him Lord again, but we know in just the few seconds that transpired since he called him Lord before uh, he has a completely different understanding of Lord at this point. Before it was just Lord, 500-pound gorilla. I don't want you to kill me, whoever you are. Who are you, sir? Here, as he says, Lord, he's beginning to understand that he truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. Although Saul uses this same word, Lord, I believe he means something quite different by it. Saul asked Jesus, what shall I do? Lord, what shall I do? And in Acts chapter 26, this is how Jesus responds in verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, now get up, Saul. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow! Isn't that awesome? God doesn't just appear to Saul in order to save him. According to Jesus, he appears to Saul in order to appoint him as a servant and as a witness to both Jews and Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In other words, Jesus wasn't just interested in saving hell-bent Saul. He was recruiting him to change the world. Amen? Aren't you thankful? And Saul responds with obedience. He stands up, blind as a bat, but he stands up. And he walks the rest of the way into the city of Damascus, awaiting further instructions from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who had turned his world upside down and changed his life forever. Now, I want to share with you three important life lessons that we can pull from the first half of Saul's conversion account here in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. First, lesson number one. More times than not, those who most aggressively attack Christians and claim that God is dead are in an unseen spiritual battle. They're wrestling with faith in God. So hold out hope and pray for them. Amen. Human beings are complicated. There are all sorts of things going on under the surface that we don't know about. I don't think I'll ever forget in my early years here at Impact Christian Church, uh, one of the elders that served as an elder when I was hired, he pulled me aside one night after a prayer meeting and he told me this. He said, Dane, whenever you look at someone, read the words hurting person on their forehead hurting person. And I thought, well, that's that's pretty profound. That's pretty profound. That's a, a pretty good insight because what we see on the surface is just a glimpse of what's going on inside a man or a woman. Oftentimes, under the surface, there's a good bit of pain that we don't know about. Under the surface of a militant atheist or agnostic or a humanist, there's oftentimes a spiritual battle raging that they're not revealing to us on the outside. So despite what you see, despite what you hear on the surface, pray for God to keep working on that person's heart. Amen? Amen. Christians, don't stop praying. Oftentimes, those who are most militant against church and against Jesus and against Christians are the very ones fighting a spiritual battle on the inside. So you join them in the spiritual battle by praying for them that God would win the victory. Lesson number two, like Saul, we're no match for God. Because he loves us, he will relentlessly goad us until we willingly Submit to him. The great British author C.S. Lewis shared some deep insights about how God worked on Saul there on the road to Damascus. C.S. Lewis said that God was like a divine chess player, systematically and patiently maneuvering his opponent into a corner until finally Saul conceded. Checkmate. So if you are Kicking against the goads today. I encourage you to knock it off. Knock it off. Stop kicking against the goads. You're just hurting yourself, and in all likelihood, you're hurting other people around you as well. Stop resisting God. He has been called the hound of heaven for a reason. If he wants to have you in his kingdom, he will hunt you down until he corners you. And he will have his way with you whether you like it or not. Sooner or later, he'll catch up to you. So stop being so stubborn. Saul learned that the hard way, but you don't have to. Jesus basically tells us today, you know what? I want you in my kingdom. We can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way. I don't know about you, but the hard way with God never works well for me. You know what? It won't work well for you either. Save yourself and others a whole lot of pain and heartache. Submit to God. Finally, lesson number three. On the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ didn't just turn a wolf into a sheep. Praise God, he began turning a wolf into a shepherd. Isn't that just like God? Remember those words used to describe Saul in Acts chapter 8 verse 3. He was on a rampage like a ravenous wolf, like a wild boar ravaging Christians. He was a wild man. Jesus not only tames the wolf, making him a sheep, he turns him into a shepherd. What an awesome, mighty God we serve. He did that for Saul, and he still does it today. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now and we thank you for the privilege of being saved by you. But Lord, you don't just save us so we can be a sheep and just go around saying, ah, ah, ah. Lord, you don't just save us. I don't think I've ever bad in a prayer before, Lord. I hope you're okay with that. Lord, you didn't just save me to, to make me a sheep, Lord. Lord, you saved me in order to make me a shepherd. Lord, to to be able to lead others to Christ, to be able to do something in this life of mine that's so much bigger than me, that's so much more important than me. Lord, you've called us to a great and awesome purpose, to spread heaven in our little corner of the world, to love others and serve others. And share Christ with others. Thank you, Lord, for this great purpose you've given us. And I pray that you would find us faithful. Embolden us to pray for those around us who seem to hate you the most. Who seem to be the most disgusted with church. Who seem to be the least likely to ever be saved. Lord, help us to, in an undaunted manner, Lord, pray for them with persistence and vigilance, because we believe, O God, that just like Saul, many of them have been fighting the spiritual battle on the inside that they haven't let on about. Lord, they've been kicking against the goads, and it's been painful, and it's been hurtful. And, Lord, they're getting closer than ever before to the point when they're going to have a Damascus Road experience. So, Lord, help us to be persistent in our prayers for them. And if anyone, Lord, is listening to this message right now, and they themselves... Realize they are kicking against the goads. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they finally say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. Checkmate. You win. I submit my life to you. And I will love you and serve you and trust you from this point forward. Thank you for saving me. I'm ready and willing to walk in obedience and be used by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'd like to share every week that you have an opportunity to get right with God today. We share the ABCs here at Impact. A, admit that you were a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation, the Word of God says. Don't wait until tomorrow or next week. Today is the day. You're not promised tomorrow. If you are ready to get right with God, confess your sins to him. Repent just like Chuck Colson did, just like Saul of Tarsus did. Repent of your sin, put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life and reach out to us. We'd love to pray with you and set up a time for you to get baptized, making it clear to God, the angels, and anyone that's watching, I'm following Jesus Christ from now on. Oh, those of you who have already made that decision, I'm so glad that you joined us for this broadcast as well. We serve a great and awesome God. Remember this week, don't kick against the goads. It's painful, and you ain't going to win a battle of the wills against God. God is going to win. His will will be done in your life. And so submit to Him this week. Obey Him, trust Him, and love Him with everything you've got. And be His vessel to pray for those around you who need Christ. And be the mouthpiece of God to share the good news with him. God bless you as you serve our Lord this week.